Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name's Stu and on this week's show I'm going to catch up with Dr. Juan Nunez Iglesias who is a research scientist at Victorian Life Sciences Computation Initiative and find out exactly what they are doing with supercomputers. Chris... What have you got in store for us? I am going to be talking about the latest NASA discovery of water on Mars. Is it a big deal? Uh, Well, we'll find out what it means. Claire, what have you got for us? Well, I'm actually going to be talking about uh, the crown of thorns. Not the crown, but the um, The sea star. The sea star that is overtaking the Great Barrier Reef. So we're all going to be diving into some of that. Nice. in the studio with me today, Dr. Juan Nunez Iglesias, who is a research scientist at the Victorian Life Sciences Computation Initiative based at the University of Melbourne. And if that sounds a little confusing to you, don't feel alone in that. Welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks, Stu. So what, what is it that you actually research? So the VLSCI in general is a giant supercomputer and a bunch of people who are experienced in using it. And we help life scientists who work at big data type of problems, uh, use our supercomputers to answer their research questions. My work in particular is to use computer vision uh, to analyze images um, of a broad range of problems. So when you say computer vision, what, what do you mean? The computer can see things and, and tell you? Yes, so computer vision is uh, it's kind of what researchers call a hard AI problem, which is a problem that is very, very easy for humans and very, very difficult for computers. Uh, so you can think of voice recognition as the, the example people are most familiar with now because of Siri, which is nice, but it's kind of funny in that it's sometimes very rubbish and it makes mistakes that humans would never make. And and you work on, I guess, uh, a visual version of that. You look at image recognition. Exactly. So okay. image recognition, so trying to figure out whether an image of a cat is actually a cat uh, is something that we do trivially and computers have a very difficult time with. I'm from a horticultural science background and people have often asked me, why is there no app that you can just take a photo of a plant and it can tell you what it is straight exactly. away? And this is exactly why, because... How far away from it are you? What's the lighting conditions? How advanced is the plant? Is it in flower? Is it in leaf? All those things. And I guess computers are not that great at at figuring this stuff out. But you're working on this. Yes. So we're trying to use it to analyze uh, images that are a bit different. There are images coming from a microscope. So they look nothing like cats or or plants, um, which it makes it a bit harder, actually, because companies like Google are actually working on recognizing plants and recognizing cars and so on for their self-driving vehicles. But not many companies are working on the microscopy side of things, trying to recognize cells in images and, and what the shape of the cell is and what different proteins are doing in the cell uh, at that time. So you're talking at the, quite a microscopic level of, of activity. So this is probably things that most people haven't even seen. That's right, yeah. Um, and so one of the problems that I work on is uh, brain cells and trying to figure out how networks of these cells can do things like process uh, motion and in particular how we, how we 
see things. Uh, so there's a nice little loop there of using computers to see things so we can understand how we see things. Right. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds pretty, uh, pretty amazing. So, so what, what does your day-to-day work involve? Uh, essentially, I have a set of microscopy images that I am analyzing at any given time. Um, these are enormous data sets, so many, many gigabytes. And I try to determine how the cells in those images are connected to each other. And right now, because as we said, this is a difficult problem, computers are nowhere near uh, getting us even remotely accurate picture of how the cells are connecting. Uh, so, so you're asking the computers to help, but they're not really all that good at helping. Is that that's right? And I'm <laughs> trying to figure out how to make them better. You're trying to. Are you trying to figure out how you can instruct the computers to be more useful? Or yes, that's right. Okay. And what's what's the ultimate goal? Is that you'll you'll get a better picture of. I guess, how computers work and how our eyesight works at the Absolutely. same time. Absolutely. Both of those things are important, um, and, and I'm happy to be working on both at the same time. So recently, uh, a group that I was formerly involved with uh, s- came out with a paper showing how flies detect motion. Again, motion is one of these things that you don't think about, but actually it's, it's very involved to determine when, when something is moving. You have to correlate something being in two places in space at different time points. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was, I was in the park the other day and I was playing with a dog and throwing a Frisbee. Yeah. And I was just sort of thinking how amazing it is that the dog can predict where Absolutely. the Frisbee is going to get to and catch it yes. and then bring it back. You know, that's it's and we don't think about it. The dog probably doesn't think about it in terms of what it's actually doing. No, all these so you... calculations it's got to make to catch the Frisbee. And yet we do it all the time. We do it all the time. That's right. And a computer would find that very difficult. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it would. Um, And so, yeah, determining how this is done at the cellular level, uh, so individual photoreceptors in your retina uh, receiving light signals, and then downstream signals from different photoreceptors need to get combined with a certain delay in order to detect motion. Um, So um, the group that I worked with... um, was the first to show a circuit that could actually do that, uh, in this case, in the fruit fly visual system. Um, but later groups have shown that this principle uh, works also in uh, mouse visual system. So it seems to generalize across the animal kingdom. Which right, is so nice. it's a similar circuit, or is it the yes. same circuit? Not the same circuit, but, but a, similar. But a very similar yeah. process. Okay. Yeah. Now... Uh, one of the other reasons that we got you in, not just because you're doing interesting work, is that you're involved in Melbourne Knowledge Week, which is coming up in October in Melbourne. Uh, what yes. are you actually doing at Melbourne Knowledge Week? Okay, so VLSCI is putting together a little seminar. Um, it's targeted at the general public. Everyone can come uh, and listen about uh, listen to what we're involved in. Uh, so I'll be talking about what I just talked about, but in more detail with pictures. It'll be a lot easier to understand what the circuit is doing. Um, <laughs> when you're talking about vision, uh, radio is maybe not the best medium. To yeah, perhaps what not, you're talking perhaps about. Not. But I think when you're talking about very complicated things, diagrams are very helpful. Very um, helpful. So so come, come and listen to that. Um, there's also Hamish Meffin, who works at the National Vision Research Institute. Um, and he was involved in the development of the bionic eye which is a, an implant that replaces your retina and sends impulses to your brain um, in the hopes of restoring vision in people who have retinal degeneration diseases. 
So again, this is where knowing what your cells are doing, what kind of processing happens upstream of the brain is very yeah. important. Um, and Andrew Turpin, um, who is using our supercomputers to develop better tests for glaucoma, because glaucoma is a disease that if you catch it early, uh, is quite treatable. Yep. So it's very important to have tests that are accurate, and highly sensitive, and so on. So the, so the theme is supercomputing for sight, um, and that's what BLSCI is putting together. Okay. Well, it's, it sounds really interesting to me, uh, and I'm sure some of our listeners will be interested. Uh, it's actually on the uh, 22nd of October, and it's at the University of Melbourne. So if you're in Melbourne, obviously that'll be a lot easier to get to. Uh, if you just search online Melbourne Knowledge Week Supercomputing for Sight, you will probably very likely come up with uh, the program for Melbourne Knowledge Week, and you'll be able to track it down that way and book online. Um Dr. Juan Nunes Iglesias, thank you for joining us on Lost in Science. Thank you for having me. Some of the biggest science news in the last couple of weeks has been the announcement by NASA on the 29th of September that they found water on Mars. It's huge. It is huge. Yeah, I was Thank pretty you. impressed. Yeah, I was impressed too. Um, now, of course, remember, they didn't actually find like a river or anything like that. They just found evidence. Yeah, but that was a big deal. Um, this isn't. I should point out this one isn't the the first time there's been a discovery of water, and this has caused a bit of. I've seen people complaining about this on the internet, saying, "Oh, didn't they find um this? You know, this stuff years ago. They saw these these tracks of water, and they found life on Mars in the seventies. So, you know, what's the big deal about this? It's just a NASA cover. Hang on, they found life on Mars in the seventies? Well, That's no, they didn't. They didn't actually. Um, but uh, I'll explain. How about I explain what they actually found in the 1970s? Because that's an interesting story that's related to this. That is, and one. is this, yeah. was this the Viking missions? The Viking landers. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So look, let's let's turn the clock way back though. First of all, to look at the context. That's the one, and see when people first started looking at water on Mars. And as far as I can figure out, we need to look back to 1877 when the Italian astronomer Giovanni Schiaparelli thought he saw what he called canali. Not Cataloni or Canali. No, Canals. Canals, he thought he saw. Well, no, that means channels in Italian, apparently. But it was translated into English as canals. And so everyone thought, ah, canals. I mean, was channels was wrong anyway. But everyone thought then, oh, there's intelligent life building canals on Mars. And um, Because are are canals man-made? Yeah. Or made by humans Mm. anyway. 
So then, yeah, so people got really excited that there was obviously a civilization on Mars building canals. So um, the, the U.S. astronomer Percival Lowell, he, um, he drew elaborate sketches of these canal networks. Um, yeah, he got a bit excited. I mean, I think he was seeing what he wanted to see, really. And they were looking, peering through telescopes, trying to make out what they could, they could and, see. So, yeah, like it was kind of wishful thinking. But what they could see, though, interestingly, were the ice caps of Mars, which are, of course, water. They're just frozen water. Mm. So... I guess we can say that, you know, apart from the mistaken observation of canals, there was actual observation of water, just that frozen solid type of water. So, yeah, tick, there is water on Mars. Um, it's just frozen. Um, there is evidence, of course, that there was water in the past. There's a lot of kind of eroded valleys and canyons and, and those sort of things. But generally, the idea of having liquid water now seems pretty unlikely because, A, it's normally very cold. The average um, temperature on Mars is minus 63 degrees Celsius. And the atmosphere is so thin that if you had liquid water, it would just evaporate very quickly. And this is, of course, a big deal when it comes to looking for life, because as far as we know from the only example we've got, you do need water for there to be life. All, all of the life on Earth needs water of some description. All the life we've seen in the universe so far. Which is all water. from Earth. Which is all from Earth, yeah. <laughs> Sample yeah. size yeah. one. Yeah. But this is when we come to this this kind of observation from the 1970s. As as you said, this was the Viking landers. They had two of them that they sent to to Mars to to do various experiments. And they had this a number of instruments designed to try and look for signs of life. And one of them involved dropping some nutrient water, not the stuff you buy in bottles, but like some water with nutrients in it, and on, onto some Martian soil, and then seeing if it gave off carbon dioxide, essentially. And it did. Um, and this is kind of a big surprise because none of the other instruments made any signs of life. Uh, so people got to try to explain what this was. And one of the possible explanations for this uh, observation was that there may be some chemical in the soil that uh, is a highly, very strong oxidizing agent that happens to be producing the carbon dioxide. And guess what? There's a chemical in the soil that happens to be a very strong oxidizing agent. That's right. It's these things <laughs> called. There's these things called perchlorate salts. Now these are um, a type of salt that contain the iron perchlorate, which is ClO4, uh, and you know these are really strong oxidizers. They're actually used in rocket fuel. They're such good oxidizers. Uh, they also make really good antifreeze. And um, this is kind of when we start getting back into the idea there might be water um, because they can potentially keep water liquid uh, under the really cold Martian conditions. And in fact, liquid water has been seen, actually seen on Mars before now. In 2008, the Phoenix lander, um, they saw drops of water on its, on its leg struts and it's believed to be from soil that it kicked up with this perchlorite in it perchlorate um, salts in it, uh, then condensing water out of the atmosphere. Right. Could, they, could they prove that at the time? Because it wasn't actually, like, was it on Mars? It was on Mars, yeah. and they saw these little, like, little lumps forming on the, on the leg struts, and wow. they explained that as by being drops of water. But that wasn't natural, of course. That was just kind of, you know, from a, um, a spacecraft. There was a disturbance before yeah. that happened. Mm. Yes. Yeah. But then we come to get closer to what we saw today recently, and this was the um, some observations by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Uh, in 2011, it observed these kind of trickles down slopes of, of craters. Now, this is, this is a spacecraft that was launched 10 years ago, so it's been going strong for quite a while. Uh, but they saw these kind of things running on the edges of, slope of craters, and they looked like they could be from water courses, but they weren't quite sure, so they didn't call them, you know, creeks or gullies. They just called them recurring slope linear to be a bit kind of, you know... Linear. Technical. Linear, yeah. Yeah. 
sound technical at least. Uh, but yeah, the, what they, but then the big announcement last week, um, which coincided with a paper published in the journal Nature, was that they used infrared spectroscopy to examine the chemical content of these recurring slope lineae, and they found that they contained these perchlorate salts, suggesting that, um, or demonstrating that they're probably from this kind of salty brine, as they put it. So there's like water, liquid water kept liquid due to the antifreeze powers of these salts. Um, and that is then enough to run down the, the slopes before it evaporates. So yeah, that's, that's kind of what they've, they've concluded. Uh, now the question remains then, of course, where is the water coming from? Is it, is it underground or is it coming out of the atmosphere like, um, like it did on the, the Phoenix lander? Um, if it's underground, it could be like there's salty aquifers or even just ice that's melting or something like that because the, these are only seen in the summer. Um, but people are quite excited about the idea that it's actually coming out of the atmosphere because this is something that is seen in the Atacama Desert, um, one of the driest places on Earth if not the driest place on earth, uh, where the only kind of life that can survive is in little damp patches where other sort of salts there are pulling water out of the atmosphere in, in the same fashion. It's a process called deliquescence, if you want a word to add it's to your... It's a beautiful word, deliquescence. It's, it's a high-scoring word in Scrabble. Yeah, yeah I'm going to um, try and use that in conversation the next week. You should. Hmm. So the big question then is, could there still be life on Mars as a result of this? Um, if I had to put money on it, I'd say unlikely. Um, you know, they point to the Atacama Desert and say, look, there are these extremophiles, these extreme organisms that can survive in these conditions. But you need to have life that's kind of evolved to start with that can actually then evolve to be in those extreme conditions. Now, if we look at the only example of life we have at the moment being Earth, uh, where look, life took about a billion years to form after the Earth was, was formed, um, and then it stuck around in a very basic state. Like it took another three billion years to get complex multicellular life. Evolution was pretty slow to get going. I guess is what we're saying. So with Mars, when it had a lot of water, probably would have only been for a few billion years, possibly. Uh, sorry, a few million years. Um, and whether that's enough time for life to have evolved and to got to a stage where they can then get a foothold and stay there while um while the, the planet dried out. I don't know, it's a bit hard to... And then adapt to the harsher conditions. Harsher conditions, yeah. especially because... Well, one of the things now is, of course, we're going to investigate this. And so they're talking about whether they can send, say, a rover over to look at these uh, these recurring slope lineae. And people say, no, you can't send, say, the Curiosity rover over there because it may be contaminated with Earth bacteria. And other people are saying, oh, no, because the Martian radiation would have killed any bacteria that's on the rover. It's like, well, if it's that bad, then maybe it could have killed anything that lives on the mm. as well. Although it's, if it's underground, perhaps it survived as well. So we don't actually know for certain. There will be a pro, another one um, sent in, launched in 2018, the ExoMars rover that will be extra sterile and able to investigate. So, I don't know, fingers crossed that it finds something. Mm. Um, it is a pretty exciting possibility. I mean, of course, it'd be great if there was life, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that we probably won't find life. I'm hoping that we will, but I wouldn't be surprised if we don't find any life, really, is my, my guess. Certainly, certainly not spiders from Mars. No. traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. I'm Maggie Adair and Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. 
get your snorkel out because we're going to be diving into some of the awesome innovations in the fight against the crown of thorn starfish, or should I say sea star. For those of us who aren't familiar with the crown of thorns starfish or sea star, um, it's acanthaster plantsy. That's that's your... Thanks for clearing that up. That's a, that's a zoological name, is it? Yep. Yep. Now, if you can imagine um, a sea star or starfish, it's got five legs. Mm-hmm. Now, the crown of thorns, um, if you add 16 more legs to it, that's what how many legs it has. 21. Yep. Up to 21 legs. Maybe it's double the size of the sea star that you might have in your mind. Um, and its whole body is covered in five centimeter venomous spines. So it sounds like a pleasant customer to have around. Yeah, it's a nasty bit of work. They are actually um, native to the coral coral reefs around Australia. But um, the issue, there's a couple of issues here. Um, The problem at the moment is what it eats. So um, crown of thorn starfish eat coral or coral polyps, which are the tiny animals that live inside the coral to be specific. And when I mean eat, I mean they totally annihilate the coral. Um, they crawl on top of the corals, spewing their digestive fluids all over the top, liquefy them, digest them, and just leave the calcium exoskeleton behind. And they are so good at this, they can get through one square metre of coral in one month. And so that's just one crown starfish. If they're kind of natural to coral reefs, then why are they a problem? They've been causing a lot of havoc because um, they've had some population explosions mm-hmm. due to fertiliser runoff uh, into the reef systems. So human activity. So human activity. So really, so really it's the human's fault, yeah. but it's resulted in these, um, these epic population booms of these crown of thorn starfish. Um, and in fact, there's now estimated to be 12 million crown of thorn starfish on the Great Barrier Reef. So let me guess, the solution to this is not going to be to get rid of the humans, it's going to be to get rid of the starfish. It is to get rid of the starfish, manage the starfish issue. And these starfish, along with cyclones, are the main cause of destruction of the Great Barrier Reef. I know that you're thinking, what are we going to do to control these killer sea stars or starfish? One actually, one thing I forgot to mention about the sea stars is they're sort of like the Terminator. Um, if you if you try and destroy them by cutting them, they can reform, regenerate, and create more crown of thorn sea stars. So so each what each leg can turn yeah. into a whole yep. sea star on its own. That's right. Wow, it's creepy. That's, yeah, it's it, it it's sort of it, it's reminding me some somewhat to of the Terminator and something like Fantasia. Yeah, you know Mickey that? Mouse, the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yeah, the Sorcerer's yeah. Apprentice, but like oh, this with the terrifying broom and he yeah. starfish. Up the broom yeah. And it turns each little shard of broom turns into yeah, another yeah. broom. Yes. Yeah. Spoiler alert for Mickey Mouse. <laughs> so up until recently, the best effort we had to control uh, the spread of millions of these coral killers uh, was an elite team of divers who would find a crown of thorns and inject it with poison. So in response to it, uh, James Cook University researchers have gone one step better and have developed a robot. So you're setting out a Terminator to hunt a Terminator is That's what you're doing. Right. Of it's course. just it's it's the ecology Terminator series. Right. Now the Crown of Thorns um, Starfish robot is called the Cotspot because it's the Crown of Thorns sea star or starfish yep. robot. Yep. Cotspot. Cotspot scans the reef and finds crowns of thorns and injects them with poison. Now, Cotspot uh, sort of looks like an underwater yellow torpedo. 
<laughs> it's got a vision-based underwater robotic system and it's decked out with GPS, thrusters on either side of it and a forward camera and a downward camera. It's totally amazing. It's mm. an awesome mm. feat of engineering. Mm. Uh, and it's been trained to ID crown of thorn starfish in coral, in coral reef environments. And the way that they actually trained it was through thousands of YouTube clips. So can you imagine the training room for the robot, like just like watching all the YouTube clips? It's not going like, to go hunting kittens next, is it? And if it isn't 100% sure, if there's any sort of doubt in its robot circuitry that what it's looking at is a crown of thorns sea star. Then it takes a photo of it, sends it back to the marine scientists, and then they confirm or deny before it takes action. Its other specs, it can dive down to as deep as 100 metres, but normally stays within a 1 to 30 metre range. It can stay in the ocean for up to eight hours, mm. killing um, crown of thorns starfish, and delivering over 200 fatal shots before it has to come back and refuel. Now, this is all very cool, as, as I can tell that... Um, it does sound pretty cool. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. And it's a pretty big contribution to the management of this species. Mm -mm. And get, getting getting the the, um, the, uh, the human divers out of the picture, because really no one likes diving on the Great Barrier Reef. It's good that they've got robots <laughs> to do that now. Yeah, well, you've, you've raised a good point there. Like, robots, as awesome as they are, they're also hugely expensive, mm -hmm. and they can break down. And at the moment, we only have one prototype, so, oh. you know... Um, there's there's a little while until we can get this as a you know proper program to to try and manage this issue, um, but what I would love to see um, is an effective way that community groups in Australia and in the Pacific can help with the crown of thorns problem, um, and be mobilised to protect their reefs because up until recently it was especially hard for people to uh, poison the crown of thorns. Mm -hmm. And um, the type of poison that the scientists were using to, um, to poison the sea stars was some type of uh, ox bile, like the Ugh. bile from the stomach of, of cattle. Right. Yeah. So it was expensive, hard to come by, and s sort of weird. In the f Very, very strange. Um, but in the last couple of days... James Cook University researchers again have discovered something that kills crown of thorns better, more effectively than um, ox cattle bile. bile. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, could um, possibly be more effective than ox bile? <laughs> it's white vinegar. Oh. It's just the white vinegar that I'm sure you have in your cupboard at Plain home. Plain old skipping girl vinegar. Exactly. Ordinary, everyday kitchen shelf vinegar. I've noticed there's been a lack of starfish on my kitchen shelf next to the vinegar. I was wondering why I never see any there. Yeah. Now it makes sense. Now you know why. Because yeah. a, um, a 20 mil dose of vinegar um, delivered to a crown of thorn starfish is 100% effective after 48 hours. Wow. Which is pretty damn How much? good. 20 mils. Wow. That's not much. 20 cc's. No. Right. <laughs> Stat. Um. So, yeah, between the humans and the robots, I think that we can work together to manage this plague of sea stars on the Great Barrier Reef.
that's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.